Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This episode of the podcast was recorded at the Australian Shareholders Association Sydney Conference. So if you hear people chattering or maybe even a bell or some plates and cutlery, you know what it is. It's a bit of background noise. Try to tune that out. We've done our best with editing. Hopefully one day you'll see us on the road in a city near you. Keep your eyes peeled on the RAS Media website for any updates for events that we'll be hosting in the back half of the year. But in the meantime, you can enjoy this episode and know that it was done in real life. Thanks for listening. James, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast. Pleasure. We are going to be talking about a few different things, hopefully spanning all of your areas of expertise. We're going to be talking about inflation. Um, but I've also got a few quick short answer questions here as we record at the ASA. And this is a bit of fun, this first one. Yep. It's uh, if you could acquire one skill, it doesn't necessarily have to be an investing skill or a business skill, it could be anything. What would it be? You know, um, there's so many I'd love to have, but mm-hmm. if there was one, I'd say if I could survive on lesser sleep, four hours would be perfect, for example. So I need eight hours of sleep a night. I can occasionally get away with seven or so a night, but but if you get four hours consistently, that's an extra 28 hours a week, you know, and, and when you're time poor, you know, the yeah. work day, the, everything else, it's, I think... People reckon they can train themselves to do this. John Houston reckon you train yourself to, to sleep four hours. So I haven't done it yet, but uh, if I get there, I've, uh, I've got a massive amount of extra time on my hands. I don't know if it was a myth or what have you, but I think Einstein tried to sleep for, he tried to have micro naps. Uh, and I don't know how that paid off, but if it's true, well, he did pretty well. He did pretty well. <laughs> he did pretty well. So, mate, we have a lot of people on the show that appear. There might be portfolio managers, chief investment officers, analysts, and people can readily identify with what that job might entail. Yep. As you're in your role as investment specialist, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Maybe what's a typical day look like? How does it differ from those other types of roles that we hear about? Yeah, sure, sure. Look, look, it's very much a sort of a conduit role. So between the investment team and sales and marketing and, and the business. Um, and look, um, you know, it, it involves sort of a bit of everything, you know, telling telling the investment story, doing presentations, podcasts, days like today, mm-hmm. uh, you know, writing commentary, getting the key messages right, um, explain the process, how we invest, uh, the way we do, meet with clients, answer queries, all the stuff the portfolio managers, if you if they were doing it, they wouldn't have any time to manage the money, right? You know, so 
I, I sit with them and uh, and you know look at competitors, look at new products, all those sort of things. That's a bit of a jack of all trades role, a bit of a generalist role, but really suits my skills. Yeah, I heard um, uh, an interview you did with Equity Mates, and it was like really wide ranging. Like one minute you're talking about the economy, and the next minute you're talking about bottom up analysis and companies and examples, and um, that's actually a good segue because. One of the things that you, you spoke about in that conversation that you had with those guys was this idea of like where, infl- where we are with inflation and those types of things. And many investors are familiar with the idea of an economic cycle and it kind of looks like a clock to some people. Maybe there's some other dials that they use and they think about expansion versus contraction, inflation rates, etc. But if you were to think about where we are in the economic cycle as we record this in uh, May 2023, how would you characterize that and what should people be thinking about? I'd think about it as, uh, you know, history doesn't repeat, but shit rhymes a lot. And this is, to us, feels a lot like the 70s. I think you have mini cycle. We have The business cycle is the most important thing in equities, investments generally, but particularly in equities. You have these mini cycles of three to five years. I think you have longer 10, 15-year cycles. But I think sometimes you get these big 50-year cycles. And People only have memory space for about five or ten years and then they forget. That's mm. why we have bubbles. So we had the dot-com bubble and then everyone said, oh, I'll never do that again. And then, you know, guess what? We've just been through it again. Yeah. You know? And we have a housing bust and every 15 years, seven years, we have a housing bust. I think what this one is quite unusual is that we haven't really had this for maybe 50 years, the, the sort of 70s. And if you think about it, um, you know, the 1960s were, were a pretty wild time, a lot of social uh, you know, upheaval, a lot of change, uh, a lot of a lot of progression. Uh, we were fighting wars in Vietnam. You know, we were, we were spending. You know, Lyndon Johnson tried to abolish poverty, the uh, poverty package in the late '60s, and it was like you could not, no matter what you did, you couldn't cause inflation. And we'd had no inflation since World War II, really, no sustainable inflation, and there was no end of policy stimulus and governments. You know, allowed the dollar. You know, the Nixon shock, he allowed the dollar to float. Um, mm. You know, those massive stimuluses from, from Johnson. Nixon had a massive stimulus package in 1972. And it, it felt a bit like what we've been through the last few years. Didn't matter what people did, you can print any amount of money, you can do any number of stimulus, you can, you, can, you know, you can fund COVID, but there's no consequence. And then finally in the 70s, we got inflation. And people thought it would go away and it didn't. And it kept on coming back and then it got embedded in the system and it kept on going. And I think the worry is today that we're sort of getting that same phenomenon now. So, look, it started in 67, 68, it went away for a year or two, then it came back in the early 70s, and it went away for a little while, then it came back again. And finally, people got used to it, and they embedded it in their expectations, and inflation was here to stay. And even though inflation's now falling, and I think that's what everyone sort of is looking at, and, and certainly the headline inflation rate is coming down. You know, in the US, the, the University of Michigan runs a survey People are actually expecting higher inflation again next year. So their expectations are going mm. back up. So once it becomes embedded and people expect 3 to 5% inflation, then 5 to 7%, then whatever, that's when you get this inflation expectations. In fact, when I was studying economics in the 90s, we were trying to understand how that all went so badly wrong. And so 30 years on, we're kind of back to that, to that mentality again. And I think that's the real risk. And if you look forward, um, it's not to, you know, I think... Even in a high inflation environment, you know, it's not the end of the world. You just got to, you know, once it hits, you just got to accept it and learn to invest around it and so forth. And I think if you look forward um, to what's going to go on in the next few years, one of the big themes is probably this, you know, decarbonisation would be one of the things. Now, we should probably do that. It's a good thing to do, I think, you know, to decarbonise the economy. 
um, and to get rid of fossil fuels eventually. That, that'll take decades to achieve, um, but that process has to begin now if you want to do it. Um, but the big thing that people are ignoring is it's going to cost a fortune. You know, you have, to, yeah. you have to spend something like, I've heard anything from 40 to 50 to 100 trillion dollars. Now, when you dump that amount of money on a, on a problem, um, it's going to cause prices to rise. And so I think that that could be almost the equivalent of the oil price shock of the 70s. Oil prices kept on going up and up and up in the 70s, and people say, well, that'll never happen again now, and it won't have the same influence. But if you replace our entire fossil fuel emission system with a more expensive system, um, which we need to do to save the environment, it's going to cost more money and send energy prices up for, for quite a long period of time. So you could find you have history sort of rhyming, repeating in very much the same way. When you think about expectations then, uh, so consumer business expectations, how do you measure that? Like how, how do we as measure it as, a, I guess, as finance professionals? And then what do you watch in that? It's, it's a good question. I mean, there's, I think this is where people get caught unawares because it often doesn't show up in the numbers. You know, we, we could actually see the inflation problems coming in 2020. And it's not because we had a genius macro model. Uh, it's not because we're, we're actually looking at all the, the, the economy-wide data. You know who told us? The CEOs told us. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes something affects 10% of companies and 15% of companies, but suddenly every CEO was telling us in 2020, there's big inflation coming, we can't stop it, we've got to pass it on, and it's going to be bigger and stronger than people expect. And so everyone was sort of caught, if you think about it, everyone thinks, you know, recency bias and you know, the last five years, oh, everything will return to normal again, our models will tell us it's transitory, and inflation spike back to normal, we can move on again. And then we had transitory, then we had transitory for longer. <laughs> so, so people keep on making cognitive excuses as to why it's not panning out the way they thought it would. And next thing, we've got inflation sort of embedded, you know, and, and the Fed's obviously worried about this because, you know, people thought, oh, you should be cutting rates by now and, and, and whatever and, and or, or pausing. But they're still sort of trying to keep the pressure up because they can see the big risk is maybe we're in 1973 right now and it was very tempting to say 73 recession, it's all over. The inflation's gone. It's been purged from the system. 74 and 75 will be years of low inflation. And in fact, it came back again, again yeah. and again and again. And once it's, it gets, sort of gets embedded, it's an it's a, important thing is there's no data. It's a psychological thing. So people start to behave as if inflation's going to stay high. They make higher wage claims. And you get this push and pull effect, um, which causes a, a wage price cycle to occur. And if you look back in the in the 70s, you know, oil prices, all these things went up and down, but rents and wages kept on going up and up and up and up through the 70s. So we have a housing shortage, rents are going up, people need to get paid more just to just to pay the rents. And I think that's gonna that, that money will go straight into higher rents again. So I think you're gonna have this rent wage sort of spiral potentially as well. And ironically as well, if you have this you know, everyone's quite confident about the economy, including me. I, I think it's very hard to bring about a recession. There's just so much pent-up demand. And the economies in Australia and the US seem to be doing so well. The issue is, if you have a moderate recession, you know, a soft landing rather than a hard recession, well, inflation may never get a chance to reset. It might just go down a little bit and then start, sort of rise off a higher base again. So it wasn't until the late 70s that they really contained inflation with a really big recession and very high interest rates. Now, I don't think there's an appetite to do that yet, 
Um, and the Fed's trying to do it indirectly by saying instead of crushing the economy, we'll just keep rates high for longer until inflation's under control. But I think there's many opportunities for a head fake here where they think they've done enough and inflation appears to go down. But in fact, underlying it, there's still that upward pressure compared to before. Uh, this is uh, it's really interesting because up until coming here to the ASA event, I hadn't really, like we've, in recent times we saw the RBA lift again and I don't think many people expected that, at least the, the economists didn't expect that. Uh, and then he, coming here to the ASA event this week, um, it seems to be a view amongst perhaps people like yourself, I'm not sure, um, that maybe we're not done yet. Maybe the central banks need to hit harder sooner. And no, 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 I guess I'll throw that over to you and just your opinion. On it. Yeah, look, I, I think that's, that, that could be true. Um, and, you know, uh, if you look at um, what happened again in the 70s, the... Um, you know, the, the Fed actually generated several recessions. There was a recession in um, sort of 1969, there was one in 73, one in 78. Every time they pushed that employment up by 3%, which should, in theory, create a normal recession, a reset of prices, but it, it just wasn't working. And and as I said, it's that sort of, that mentality was, once you get that inflation mentality, a bit like a deflation mentality, the exact opposite, if people start expecting prices to rise every year, or if people expect prices to fall every year, it changes their behaviour, changes the way they invest, changes the way they consume. Um, and uh, and I think that, and once you're sort of three to five years into that psychology, it's hard to break it. You've really got to, you know, crush the economy or print lots of money in the case of deflation to uh, to kind of, kind of create that mentality, um, change that mentality, I should say. So we have a lot of people that invest in the share market, equities, um, but also people that now fully aware of the bond market and they're starting to build properly diversified portfolios as a result of higher rates. Uh, I'm curious, if we just think about equities for a second, because that's the sexy thing that everyone wants to know about. Um, how do you, or the team at Petrol, how do you think about, I guess, the interplay between top-down and bottom-up? And yep. maybe we can look at, like, say, Aussie shares as a, as a medium for this and then up its columns. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's a good question. I mean, we're very much bottom-up stock pickers. Um, and you know we've we're, you know Warren, like Warren Buffett we're value investors so we'd love to buy something for seventy or eighty cents in the dollar fifty cents in the dollar if we can get it although usually there's something wrong with it's trading that cheaply but again we like bargains now it doesn't mean we like cheap junk we we love quality businesses so we're always on the hunt for quality in fact quality is our first screen and then we look within that quality universe of companies good businesses that are doing well which ones of them are trading at what we think are discount valuations but if you think about it. It, the ASX 300, it's 300 individual agents, you know, individual companies out there creating products, doing business, uh, making money. So you've really got to tackle it, in our view, from the bottom up. That's where the opportunities are. You've got to look under every rock. The smaller the companies are, the better, because it's less and less researched as you go further down the spectrum. So we're always looking for companies, things that have fallen behind, good companies that are mispriced, and that's how we do things, which is not to say you don't ignore the macro. Um, you definitely need to be, I'd say we're macro aware. We, we always like to keep ourselves informed about macro risks, um, but it's very hard to invest in macro. You know, as, as Warren Buffett once said, you know, in the graveyard of financial forecasters, there's a very large portion set aside for macro forecasters. You know? <laughs> so it's a very, very hard thing to do. Whereas bottom-up stock picking, in theory, is easy because there's just so many different ways you can make money, so many different possibilities, so many rocks to look under. You, you're going to stumble across bargains from time to time, and that's what we we like to do. But we like to be. We, you also also want to be aware that you don't wind up bottom up stocking your portfolio, which has got a massive macro and intended risk. 
How about then when it's, say, we're looking at markets that may be a bit more asymmetric in terms of the information or the analytics that are available? So things I'm thinking things like small cap Aussie or something like this, where people you know, still believe there's asymmetry yep. uh, in some of the data and, and what have you. How do you, how do you think that interplay shifts or does it not? Um, yeah, look, it does. I think the further, the further, the smaller you go, um, the less research there is. The top 10 companies can be covered by 10, 20, 30 brokers, you know, not bringing on as many as that these days around, but they're covered by multiple brokers. Um, and as you get into the, the 50s and the 100s and the 200, you know, ASX and down below 200, certainly below 100, and outside the ASX 300, often there's companies that are covered by one or two brokers, often no brokers cover mm-hmm. them. Uh, and that's when often, and they're often trying to get on the radar, but that's where um, you can actually find more and more opportunities and more and more bargains mm-hmm. potentially. So they're, they're under research, they're not, they're not picked over, um, and there's some great businesses there, and small caps, of course, and many of the large caps of the future, mm-hmm. so often offer great upside potential. But, um, but yeah, so there's plenty of opportunity to sort of look through that, that sort of part of the market and, and find opportunity. Uh, apologies for anyone that just heard the bell go past. That's a, to a signal to everyone to get back into the grand ballroom and uh, await the next presentation. Well, mate, I'm hoping maybe you can share as examples companies that might benefit from inflation. Yep. So higher, higher rates and as a result of higher inflation. What does that mean for some companies and how do they benefit from it? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, a couple of good examples would be, for example, um, you know, we like IAG, you know, insurance. I mean, the banks have done really well. They've, they've rallied quite hard. They do face some risks as, as time goes on. But you look at, the, look at the insurance companies, especially something like IAG, it's been left behind. You know, it used to trade at $7, $8 a share. It's now trading for, you know, almost half that. Um, they're in the bottom of the cycle. Um, they've had a lot of rain. They've, they've been rain impacted, lots of claims. But as we move into drier weather conditions, which appear to be coming, um, probably already here, then their claims go down, their pricing power goes up. They can still maintain quite high premiums, but the, the claims on their balance sheet go down. We think that's a positive asymmetry for a company like that. As rates go up, they earn more money on their, on their float money, the insurance premium they collect as well. So they're sort of quite positively correlated to rising interest rates. So think about higher inflation and rising rates. They do quite well out of that. Plenty of resource companies as well do do very well. So we own our local resources. In fact, I'll talk about that today later at the conference, which is, you know, got uh, Zircon and uh, Rutile, uh, which exports to China, uh, which are in very high demand commodities. They're sort of using all sorts of ceramics and other things. Um, but it's also investing in a new rare earths refinery as well, uh, which which is sort of their new growth asset for the future. Um, so that's a great business. And of course, rare earths are using everything. So, you know, as inflation goes up, commodities in general benefit, but you can find those, com- and, and, and of course, the decarbonisation wave to come, you need rare earths in everything. You need, you know, cobalt, rare earths, uh, you know, nickel, copper, all those sort of metals are used in electric vehicles, they're used in windmills. Um, in, in solar panels and so forth. So we see enormous demand for those sort of rare, rare commodities. The inflation in those, the t- people talk about it as being greenflation. The inflation in those commodities uh, will be very significant. So the companies that, that, that have the access to those rare quantities of those resources will be very well placed. Um, Newcrest we own as well. Um, and also, look, I'd, I'd throw in there as well maybe Deterra. So Deterra oh, actually, actually demerged from Aluka. Uh, a little while ago, but the great thing about that business is um, it owns a royalty stream, effectively, so it gets a share of revenue from uh, the iron ore that's produced. So you think about it, it is exposed to the iron ore price, 
but they don't have any corporate structure. You know, they don't they don't have wage claims or you know a big workforce look after or cost issues or shortages in labour force. They just collect uh, the the royalty and they pass it on to the shareholders. So they're one of those things. One of those companies that can benefit from rising inflation in iron ore prices, for example, over time without any of the corporate cost structure that, that comes with it. So they get all the positives in inflation with none of the nasties that come with inflation and, and, mm. and you know, the wage and cost uh, inflation as well. It's almost like a, well, it is a play on both decarbonisation and uh, inflation. Correct. You get the two the two themes, one maybe cyclical or maybe not, and one structural for sure. Exactly. Uh, it's kind of like a, yeah, a, raid, a wave one riding a wave. Um, so one of the questions that I like to ask guests on the show is this, just given so much investing experience that you have, what would be the best business model on the ASX, we'll restrict it to that, uh, that you've come across and what made it so special? Because I'm hoping that our listeners and myself can go out there and look at these companies and see, well, what did he see? Why did he like it? And how did it turn out? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, um, I'll give you one we've invested in, but it's actually not on the ASX, is that? Is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, uh, it, it, it's, it's Flutter, basically. So it um, oh, used to be known as Paddy Power in the, in the UK. Paddy Power and Betfair actually merged together. But the reason I, I sort of instantly thought about that is that it's it's an amazing business. It's run it's run by uh, you know, managed it's run by Irish management. Uh, it's listed in in it's a PLC. It's listed in London, mm. um, but it, it's new big businesses in America. You know, and I've, I've you know it's 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 very timely. And you know, I've seen lots of great business models over time. But the reason I sort of talk about Flutter is that the execution of that business model is incredible. They're obviously into gaming, into you know fantasy sports, things like that uh, as well. So FanDuel is their is their business in the US. So. They are one of the businesses they have in the US, and it's just absolutely killing it. They're first to market. Their market share is enormous. They're um, they're, they're out competing all their competitors. Um, management hardly puts a foot wrong. They buy companies at the right time. Eighty percent of mergers and acquisitions fail. So to see a company do several mergers and acquisitions and succeed really, really well um, tells you a lot about mm. how high quality management is. So I just think right here and now, you could find you could wake up one day in the not too distant future and find that the flutter has come from nowhere, being a Small mid-cap American firm, UK firm, and suddenly it's a mega-cap firm globally because it's just such done such a great job of kind of dominating online gaming and, and entertainment and things like that. Yeah, that's a great example. So many brands that it owns as well. Ah, incredible. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think yeah. people are probably using it in Australia for you know some type of betting or something that you're doing, and yep. probably yep. don't even realise who it is. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, so I've got two more questions from uh, for, for you, mate, and. Um, one of them is a bit of an inversion. So I'm asking you for the most successful, well, a successful investor that you know or you admire, but you personally could never invest like them. Yeah. Look, the first one coming to mind is Dr. Jim Simons, who oh, yeah. is a an Renaissance Technologies, as you mm-hmm. know, in the US. Um, Quant Genius um, runs a massive firm uh, and a huge number of hedge funds, and they make 40% per annum and collected a very large performance fee as well. But um, they've kind of really mastered that art and they're, they're, they're benefiting from all little arbitrages around the world mm. and so forth. But um, I can't do that. Um, <laughs> but he's done, a, he's done an amazing job. Gen- you know, quite genius, but not a madman, you know, which is a good thing. And, yeah. uh, but, done a great, but also they're close to outside investors, right? They've made so much money over time. Their medallion fund is certainly, mm. uh, they've, uh, they've really, uh, they've really uh, done a great job. Yeah, people think that, uh, well, they say Warren Buffett, but they act- it's actually, if you look at the raw numbers, perhaps Jim Simons is the greatest investor 
uh, to walk this earth. So, exactly. Um, yeah. Who knows if that track record would continue with chat GPT or sorry, GPT, general, you know, AI and these types of models. Um, really good question. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that'd yeah. be the one. That, yeah. That'd be something that I watch really closely. But he's retired. He's got his 20 billion or whatever he's got. So I know, exactly. He's happy, to, he's happy for whatever comes next. <laughs> okay, mate. So finally, uh, this is a really hard question, but I, I reckon you tend to conjure words and quotes pretty well, um, which is just that what's one thing that, you believe that other people probably don't agree with you on? Yeah, this could be, some may agree with this, but maybe not the majority. But look, I think um, investing is very much about IQ. It always has been. And I think most people think, you know, the very smartest, it all takes, this, it's just about the smarts and everything else doesn't really matter. It, it's EQ, but it's, it's IQ, but it's also EQ. It's the grit and determination, everything else. And in fact, you need them both to a degree. And uh, but I'm really struck by the fact that the number of times really smart people can make really big mistakes, and usually when when that has happened, it's because they've, you know, they just haven't had the grit, or they haven't had the determination, or they can't see through the process, and that becomes an emotional issue, and it becomes a kind of a sustenance issue, if you know what I mean. So I always sort of think about investors who aren't just the smart, haven't got the smarts to get the job done. They've got the EQ to see it through as well. I think that's a great way to think right now as well because I've heard that EQ-IQ debate a few times, but the sustenance and the, this, I guess the ability to continue on, particularly in a market like this for equity investors, is so important because I see some of the smartest people I know that are really disenfranchised right now about investing, but it's that EQ which will kick in and, and allow people to think, well, you know what, this is maybe when the money's made. Exactly. And then this is when I shouldn't be, you know, bucked off the horse, so to speak, yep. and just get back on if I do. So um, mate, just finally, actually, just in closing, where can people find out more about you or about the business? Yeah, sure. Look, we're, we're on on the web, obviously. So, you know, you, just, uh, you can just Google or, or www.perpetual.com. Yep. Uh, we, are, um, we also have uh, a number of listed companies as well. So we have uh, five on the exchange, basically, ASX PIC, the Perpetual Equity Investment Company, ASX PCI, which is our credit trust. We have three ETFs. Mm -hmm. uh, one is the ASX uh, GIVE, which is our ESG fund mm -hmm. in Australia. Um, we also have ASX IDEA, IDEA, which is our innovation fund, and ASX GLOB, which is our uh, global value fund. So all excellent products uh, represent very much what, what, uh, what Perpetual is about. Yeah, great. And they're wonderful ticker symbols as well. They're great ideas, aren't they? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Even an idea in there. Correct, there, correct. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, mate, I appreciate you taking the time. So thanks for joining me. Good on you. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player. 
to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.